God showed the love when I went bad sin. God showed the die for me. One, five, eight. God showed the love when I went bad sin. God showed the die for me. One, five, eight. God showed the love chosen love God chosen love chosen love God chosen love boom five God chosen love when I went bad sin God chose to die for me boom five eight God chosen love when I went bad sin God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Boom, five, eight. Well, hello there, everybody. This is officially part two in this series called What About the Mosaic Law? And uh, this is just a mini-series I'm doing. Tomorrow we'll finish it up. Tomorrow's the last session, episode in this series. Uh, today, we're answering the question, um, what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law? Okay. Um, we know he doesn't abolish it. Um, we don't, we know that he doesn't like, I don't know, make it obsolete in a way where it was never true or helpful or anything like that. But Hebrews and, um, other scriptures, I can't think off the top of my head. Hebrews for sure will speak of how the old is now obsolete and done away. And, um, so we'll look at that. Okay. I know this is going to be a touchy subject for a lot of people. Um, and, and let me say this, yesterday, um, I mentioned how there, there are lots of people who don't think the Bible communicates the Mosaic law as being broken down into three categories. Um, I grew up in a church tradition where the Mosaic law was just clearly broken down into the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law, okay? And then I kind of gravitated away from that because I didn't necessarily see those dividing lines in scripture. And if I don't see something in scripture, I'm not going to hold to it. Um, but yesterday in the, in the previous session, I mentioned how both in the Old and the New Testament, there seems to be precedence for us to at least start to see those categories unfolding. Meaning that in the Old and the New Testament, you'll have to go watch the last episode to really, you know, come to grips with this, but in the Old and New Testament, um, the book of the law seems to be distinguished from the actual Ten Commandments written on the tablets of stone. Uh, let me give you uh, just a little bit on that because I didn't explain it well. So I want to kind of go into Jesus fulfilling the law by establishing this real quick. Okay, so I believe there's precedence biblically for the law being broken down, the Mosaic law being broken down into subcategories. There seems to be a distinction. For instance, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, let's transition this. Deuteronomy 30 verse 10. It says, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, 
that are written in this book of the law. And you go, well, the book of the law contains that, so these become a part of the law, and the law is summed up by the commandments and statutes. I already showed you yesterday why I don't think the Mosaic law can just be boiled down to a list of do's and don'ts, commands and statutes. I think it's, it's more than that, okay? The point of me showing you this is just to say, hey, possibly, um, when we make the distinction and say, hey, the Ten Commandments were written on the tablets of stone, and then the rest of the Mosaic law was written in the book of the law, some people would say that. I think this passage might, might give us precedence to say that the book of the law actually contained what was also written on the tablets of stone. I'm not saying this for sure, but when he says commandments and statutes that are written in this book of the law, for sure that's the ceremonial law and the law of the Levites and the sacrificial offerings and how to deal with the tabernacle and eventually the temple and, and how to function with God in your midst as the people of Israel. For sure that's in the book of the law. The question becomes, are the 10 commandments that were written on the tablets of stone are those also written within the book of the law? So let me just give you some things to kind of think about. Okay, just to think about. Deuteronomy 31, 26 speaks of how the book of the law, specifically, that's what we're looking at, not the Ten Commandments written on stone. The book of the law, there's a distinction, was actually put by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. So God tells Moses, take this book of the law, Put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there for a witness against you. Okay? So the book of the law, there's two characteristics that we really need to focus on. It is by the side of the ark of the covenant. And it acts as a witness against, not testifying for, like in a court where you have a defense attorney. This is someone actually testifying against the people of Israel. Okay? Now keep hold of that. Put a pen in your little mind and go to Hebrews chapter 9. This is what is said about the tablets now. Remember the tablets of stone that the Ten Commandments were written on? Okay, Hebrews 9 says behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Right, Where only the high priest could go in on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna, okay? So within the most holy place, we see the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides inside of that. And I explored this a little bit in the last session. I said, hey, you know, there is a scholar that says the Greek, and I still haven't yet fully established this. The Greek phrase here that says in the Ark of the Covenant, it technically means uh, just in the same location as. So the Ark of the Covenant and, and whatever is contained in it here in Hebrews 9, in the Greek, it could be that it's just in the same location as. But let's just go on. At least in the ESV, it says, Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So that, if indeed this is correct, okay, if indeed this is correct, then we have the Ark uh, or the tablets distinguished from the Book of the Law uh, in a locational manner, okay? Um, we already saw that um, the law of Moses was written in a book. Second Chronicles 35 verse 12 is helpful to look at that. They set aside the burnt offerings that they might distribute them according to the groupings of the Father's house of the lay people to offer to the Lord as it is written in the 
book of Moses. And also they did with the bulls. So the sacrificial laws and how to relate with God among his people and how to bring those sacrifices and what each sacrifice was, peace offering, burnt offering, sin offering, guilt offering, that's all found in the book of Moses. Okay, so the book of Moses seems to be written on parchment. Different than that, we have the very first time Moses is called up to Mount Sinai. And I understand this isn't for everyone. But if we're going to understand what it means that Jesus fulfills the law, I think these distinctions need to be made up front. So at least we have a category for what it looks like for, for Christ to fulfill the law and not abolish it. So Exodus 31, 18 uh, God gives to Moses, uh, he gave to Moses when he'd finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. My boy Moses, though, eventually goes down, finds Israel going to town with a golden calf, having a giant orgy, and he freaks out, breaks the tablets, has to go back up there. And now we find ourselves in Exodus 34, the second set of tablets. Moses is there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets, he wrote. The previous time it was the finger of God. This time Moses writes the tablets, the words of the covenant, uh, which is the 10 commandments. So Moses does write the 10 commandments specifically on the tablets of stone, which doesn't seem to contain what is found in the book of Moses, which are the sacrificial laws, uh, seemingly the dietary laws, law, laws of clean, unclean animals, that kind of thing. Uh, more ritual laws that relate to God being among his people in either the tabernacle or the temple. Okay, so already we see a distinction. The Ten Commandments are written on the, on the tablets. Um, they're placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. And the Book of the Law is placed beside the Ark of the Covenant, which contains more of the ceremonial things and ritual things and civil things. Um, that doesn't mean we can for sure say that the book of the law didn't contain the Ten Commandments. I just wonder why the Ten Commandments written on tablets, if indeed, uh, why that separation? Why that separation? There might be potentially cause for us to say, maybe what was written on the tablets wasn't actually written within the book of the law. Maybe. And again, that's just speculation. I just, you wonder why it seems like unnecessary repetition. There's a, why are you doing two things like that? If indeed, like, wouldn't that be a kind of waste of time? Um, let me take you to second Corinthians. The reason I go here is to show you something. Okay. This is Paul telling the Corinthian church that, Hey church, you guys are our letter of recommendation. Like you guys commend us. You guys are a witness of our apostleship. And they go, how? How are, how are we, the church, a witness of your apostleship, Paul? Well, he goes on. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Okay. Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. So here we see that he calls them metaphorically a letter of recommendation that testifies to Paul's apostleship. And it's known and read by all. Okay, this is key. And you show that you are a letter meh, from Christ delivered by us. Watch. Written not with ink. Okay. 
This is the contrast. He's saying that the difference between you and a normal letter of recommendation is that you ain't written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Now watch, not on tablets of stone, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. There might be cause to say that Paul is also recalling the book of Moses here by referencing the fact that they're not written with ink. There might be cause to say that. What I would like to point out is that Paul makes a comparison between the actual tablets of stone that had the Ten Commandments and the people of God. And he says, yeah, he's referencing the tablets of stone. I don't know why my eyes are like burning right now. Pray for me. But he's referencing the tablets of stone and saying, in the same way that, you know, Moses wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone and the first time God did by his finger, you guys are likened to that. But instead of tablets of stone, it's your hearts. So what is written, what we have to ask is what specifically is Paul hinting at that is written on the human heart, okay? I think we should go on and read. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Okay, so when he references them as being uh, written by the Spirit of God or with the Spirit of God, and their tablets, their hearts now are written with the Spirit to establish, you know, to speak to the new covenant, watch, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the spirit gives life. Now we'll, we'll talk about later what it means that the letter kills. Paul will talk about, well, does the law bring death? Well, sin actually takes advantage of the law, right? Sin actually capitalizes on the law, ex exploits it and leads to more sinfulness. So if the ministry of death, Paul is about to make a comparison now, the letter and the spirit, the old covenant and the new, okay? the actual tablets and the human heart, the ministry of death and the new ministry. So if the ministry of death, which seems to be connected to the letter that kills, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, so is he referencing the, the, the book of Moses here? Is he referencing the actual parchment that Moses wrote on to actually, you know, compile what we know as the Mosaic law in the book of Moses that sat next to the Ark of the Covenant? He doesn't seem to be referencing that specifically. What he is referencing, and I find this peculiar, is he's referencing specifically the tablets that were in the Ark of the Covenant, not the book that was next to it. He could have made that explicit connection, and he's not. And I'm not necessarily telling you what to think about it. I'm just pointing it out. Okay, I'm pointing it out and saying the letters of stone, the tablets that had the Ten Commandments, okay, not anything else, the Ten Commandments, he's saying that was the ministry of death carved in stone, and if that came with such glory that the Israelites couldn't gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, I think we're starting to get a flavor for what it looks like for Jesus to come and fulfill the law, will not the ministry of the Spirit so we're contrasting, have even more glory. Paul's not denying the glory that did come with the old covenant, which was a ministry of death. I'm just trying to get you to see he refers to what was of the old covenant as the ministry of death. 
you got to wrestle with that. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. So when you say, what does it mean by ministry of death? Well, he clarifies. The old covenant was a ministry of condemnation. The law exposed humanity's inability to meet God's standard. It exposes us and our problem and our sin and our evil. The ministry of righteousness uh, hmm, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Huh. Is he completely doing away with the old covenant? I guess we'll find out as we keep talking and, and look at the scriptures. But I will say, Paul says, the ministry of condemnation or the ministry of death, which is represented by the tablets of stone and the Ten Commandments, He's saying it has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it being the permanent glory of the new covenant, the ministry of righteousness. Now, the reason I bring this up is because remember I said the book of Moses written on parchment, you know, supposedly next to the ark, different, distinguished from, but still connected to uh, the tablets of stone in the ark. So what you have to ask yourself is, why does Paul not connect the new covenant heart with the law of God written on it? Why does he not connect the new heart to the book of Moses? And you might say, well, by, by referencing the tablets, he is referring to the book of Moses. He is referring to the book of the law. And I would say, I don't think that's an assumption we can afford to make. We for sure can say he's referencing the tablets of stone. We can for sure say that, that he's referencing the actual 10 commandments. So what you have to ask is, why does he say the tablets of stone, which contain the Ten Commandments, why are the Ten Commandments written on the human heart as opposed to what was contained in the book of Moses, which we can for sure say was the ceremonial sacrificial laws and, and all those other things, okay? There, there seems to be a distinction. There seems to be a distinction. Another thing I'd like to point out is not just that the book of Moses is different than the tablets in terms of what they're written on and where they're placed, but also... <clears throat> I showed you this in Deuteronomy 31, 26. The actual book of Moses, the book of the law, is a witness against the people. It was contrary to them. Um, it wasn't for their good necessarily in, in the sense of, like it was a blessing. It was from God. It is good. Okay. But it was not helpful to their salvation and righteousness. I'll say that. It did expose them and show them what God requires of them and what it looks like to be the people of God, but none of them could meet that standard. So it stood as a witness against them, not a witness for them. First John 5, 3, though, speaks of the commands of God, which I already said in the last session, when you see the commands of God, those most often, I have not found a place yet. Maybe Ephesians 2, 15 is, is the exception. But when you see the commands or commandments of God, those are usually referencing the Ten Commandments written on the tablets, <clears throat> not the Book of Moses, which contains the ceremonial, civil, dietary laws and sacrificial offering laws. That's not what is referenced when the word command or commandments are used most often. I'm not saying there's absolutely no exception, but for instance, in 1 John 5, 3, um, he's spoken of what the, the commandments are to love God and love people, okay, which is outlined by the Ten Commandments specifically. Um, so first John five, three, it says, this is the love of God. And if there's a lot of noise in the background, we got some people over it. Don't worry about it. 
This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Here's what John says. His commandments are not burdensome. The command to believe in the Son and the command to love God and love people from a place of faith, which includes the Ten Commandments. Now that is not burdensome. Contrasted with Deuteronomy 31:26, where the book of the law actually stands as a witness against the people of Israel. Okay, so I just want you to see that. And I'm not saying, I know that some people are going to answer back and say, well, Deuteronomy 31, referring to the old covenant way of, of relating to, to God, like that in and of itself was a burdensome thing in terms of it, you can't save you, it can't make you righteous. So it stands in its entirety as a witness against you. He's not just talking about the book of the law. Let's keep moving forward and we'll pick up the pieces as we go, okay? But I think I've made somewhat of a case to say the tablets, the Ten Commandments, are in fact distinguished from the book of the law. That doesn't mean the book of the law doesn't contain the Ten Commandments. There's a possibility. I haven't found any scripture that explicitly states that, okay? But, uh, and maybe you have some. Put it in the chat so I can see it. Um, but I will say this, again, that that small delineation will become a big deal as we look at what it means for Jesus to fulfill the law. I'm just laying the groundwork. That's all I'm doing. That the book of the law, yes, the law, the Mosaic law contains the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the terms of the covenant, for sure. I'm not denying that. Um, one is written on parchment. One is written on tablets. One is a witness against the people. John says, I, I think he's speaking to the Ten Commandments. One is not burdensome. And then one is placed inside the ark. One is placed next to the ark of the covenant. So, um, I think if we're going to be consistent with the way the New Testament uses the commandments of God, most often those are referring to the actual Ten Commandments written on the tablets of stone. That's why I think 1 John 5.3 is not speaking to the law of Moses in its entirety as not being burdensome, but specifically the moral law written on the tablets. Okay? And I think people can argue and say, well, everything about the Mosaic law in the Old Covenant was in fact an issue of morality because it was an issue of do you love God and will you trust him or not? For sure. Maybe you can make a case for that. Um, but that's not necessarily the argument we're putting forth because we're talking about New Covenant. So the question now becomes, how does Jesus fulfill the law? Okay, we're going to look at Matthew 5.17. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've, I haven't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. We'll look at that. But first, let's go in order. And I'll say this up front, and then I'll confirm it with Scripture and Scripture and Scripture and Scripture, not eisegeting, uh, which is to take Scripture out of context and then isolate that. I'm not doing that. I'm not using you know proof text to make a point that the Scripture doesn't make. But I will tell you, what it means for Jesus to fulfill the law, as we'll see, he does not just do the law perfectly. He is not just the embodiment of the law in, with arms and legs. He's not just the personification of the law in its entirety and perfection. He does embody the law. He does do the law perfectly in our place as the perfect human that represents us and is our mediator. But the law does not just instruct. The law you know, the first five books, the Torah of the Hebrew Bible, the law also prophetically predicts who Jesus is. Even within the smallest detail of the, of the ceremonial laws and the dietary laws, those all and the underlying wisdom within those laws 
speak to who Christ is in his very nature and what he will do in his work. So the law doesn't just instruct and point to Jesus in a way where it's like, Jesus will fulfill these rules. The law also prophetically points to Christ in a predictive manner where it lays out what he will be like. So again, the law is not just something to do. The law and what is required in the law, that's something to be. And Jesus is the embodiment of all that the law requires. Okay, so Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus telling John the Baptist, we got a butt ton of scriptures to go over, so I'm not going to spend too much time on these smaller portions of scripture. I want to save a lot of our time for the bigger portions. Jesus answers John the Baptist, hey, I know you're really wondering about baptizing me, so here's how he answers. Let it be so now. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to achieve the end of righteousness, to accomplish righteousness, to fill righteousness up to its full. Jesus comes to fulfill all righteousness. What God requires of the perfect human, Jesus comes to do that. Okay? Matthew eleven thirteen. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. This is key. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. What is interesting is that Jesus explicitly says that the prophets and the law prophesied not until Christ, until John. John seems to signal the end of something, the end of an era. By being the messenger that goes before the Messiah, he seems to signal maybe with his own ministry he is the last of the prophets that prophetically declare the coming Messiah. But also, John is actually said to be the greatest in terms of being born of woman. Why? Every other prophet said he's coming. John says he's here. So John in his ministry seems to mark the end of an era, enter in Christ, right? So John will decrease and Jesus will increase. Uh, Luke chapter 16 Verse 16 and 17 says this, The law and the prophets were until John, since then. Since when? Since John started his ministry of preparing the way for the Messiah, the good news of the kingdom is preached. The kingdom of God is preached. John does preach, repent. The king is coming, right? And everyone forces his way into it. But, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So even Jesus admits, not a single dot, what is written of the law, will never become void. So we have to hold on to that as we move forward and look at what it means that Jesus fulfills the law. We know this. There is not a voiding of the law. There is a completion. Voiding means this was never helpful. This is not useful. Completing means I've achieved its intended end. And it played its role in this season of human history. But now it functions like this now that I've fulfilled it. And I'm not just, you know, giving you no scripture to back that statement. I'm just trying to show you where we're going. He does say... Not a dot of the law. And this is where people will typically say, see, 
Nothing about the law of Moses is something that we're exempted from. In other words, they'll use this to say, hey, everything about the law that you possibly can do, it is still applicable to the life of the new covenant believer. Okay. Now that is a lot to read into that. That is a lot to read into that. I'm just saying it's not becoming void for sure. Jesus will actually say in Matthew 5, and again, here's where we get the language of fulfilling, not abolishing, not voiding, not, not, you know, um, what the, what the heck? So Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So when I tell you, I wasn't just inserting my own commentary in the previous verse. Like this verse confirms that Jesus fulfills, which means there is an intended end for Jesus to achieve with the law. The law and the prophets have an intended uh, end point. And Jesus marks that. He achieves that. He's the culmination of that. The law and the prophets point to him. He's the substance of everything we see in the Old Testament. And we'll go on, because I know some people will go, hey, you didn't read the last part. Okay, hold on, geez. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, until heaven and earth pass away, can we agree that heaven and earth are going to pass away? Sure, that's why he says until. He uses it as a, as a time marker. When heaven and earth pass away, until that comes, you know, before then, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. And people go, ah, yes, see, we told you, nothing about the Mosaic law has been uh, voided in terms of this doesn't apply to the Christian. Everything about the Mosaic law still applies to the Christian. Well, hold on, he says, until all is accomplished. What's gonna be accomplished? Well, beep, bop, boop. It's right there in verse 17. The law being accomplished or all being accomplished refers to Jesus fulfilling the law of the prophets. I don't think the all being accomplished here refers to heaven and earth passing away. Okay, so what we know is that not a dot will pass from the law. And again, here's a time marker until, until. So we have to ask ourselves, just like he says in Luke 16, he says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away, okay, than for one dot of the law to become void. Maybe I'll recant my statement about this, and I'm just saying this. It's almost like I didn't read it the first time. He says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Is he saying one dot of the law will never become void? I initially read it like that, as if Jesus is saying, yeah, this is an impossibility that, you know, there's not a single dot within the law itself that will ever become void. If heaven and earth are indeed going to pass away, um, and that's actually going to happen, as we see in scripture, heaven and earth will pass away. He's saying it's easier for that to happen than for one dot of the law to become void. Does that now make this uh, like realistic and possible? In terms of, and again, we have to define what it means for this to be voided. 
Um, I don't think it's, again, saying this has zero use at all throughout human history. But I will say, Jesus comes to fulfill. And I think that's part of what it means for the law or for all things to be accomplished. Maybe, and again, when you read the Old Testament, there's lots of things that have yet to happen that are going to happen at the second coming of Christ, for sure. So maybe the all being accomplished here is firstly, Jesus coming to fulfill everything we see in the Old Testament. And secondarily, when he comes back to establish new creation, that will mark the completion of everything that we see in the Old Testament as regards the future. Meaning, he says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, which again speaks to an actual time, there, that will happen. Until that happens, okay, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So maybe the time marker here is heaven and earth. Maybe it is Jesus fulfilling on the cross when he says it is finished. Or maybe it's a combination of both. But no matter what, there is an accomplished end. There is something to be fulfilled, right, within the law. And when he says law here, we know he's speaking to the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There, I'm just trying to show you, there is an intended end. And does Jesus mark that? And what does that mean? Um, if it won't be abolished, and let me look up this word real quick. That would have been helpful, huh? Would have been helpful, but I didn't do it. So let's look it up. Matthew 5.17. Okay, let's go to the Greek. Specifically here in Matthew 5, to render vain, to annul, to discard. Mm, okay, I'm down, I'm down. Okay, let's move forward. I think there are going to be some things. Because here, here's what people will say. When, when Jesus says not a dot from the law will, will, uh, will pass, they think, that means the law will always be applicable to all the people of God throughout human history. I think there's something else in mind. Meaning, everything we see in the law, it's still true. When we say, like for instance, if you're speaking to me and you go, Hey, does the law, the entire Mosaic law still apply to new covenant believers? And I go, well, not really. You go, ah, see, you're saying the law is no longer true. And I go, no, it's still truth. It's still true for the people of God. It's still true in that, you know, but the, the way that truth functions and applies now is different. For instance, was it true that God told Abraham to sacrifice his son? For sure, right? Is God going to tell me to do that? Well, I sure hope not. But if he does not tell me, right, then that means that truth had a different function in the life of Abraham than mine. That It is true that happened, but that's not going to specifically apply to my life. Maybe there's wisdom to, to draw out of it or any other instance in the Old Testament where God tells truth to a person, right? Or he tells, uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, I don't know, anything in the Old Testament that you see that actually happened. It is still true today. That really happened. But it's, it's the way that truth functions or applies in a season of human history. 
something can be true back then that, um, I don't know. We'll get to that when we get to that. I can't think right now. I need more juice. Uh, verse 19. This is where people will say, you didn't read the whole thing. Okay. Calm down. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. What commandments? Well, relating to the law, I guess. Is he speaking to the, the book of the law? Is he speaking to the Ten Commandments? Let's keep reading. And teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Ah, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now here's how to make sense of it. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So part of what it means for someone to relax these commandments, it has to do with the standard of righteousness the scribes and the Pharisees set. In other words, the scribes and the Pharisees of the day were notorious for almost lowering the bar and the standard of God so that anyone can actually meet the law. And then therefore they had a sense of self-righteousness. And Jesus is saying, no, the, the standard of righteousness that the Pharisees and scribes have, the self-righteousness they have, you have to exceed that if you wanna get into the kingdom of heaven. You have to exceed that. They've lowered the bar. They've relaxed the least of the, they've relaxed the commandments of God in terms of saying, hey, the, the standard of God is something we can meet. They've brought the bar down low enough for people to meet. Whereas the, the law, the standard of God is supposed to function in a way where it exposes your inability to enter the kingdom. So again, when Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, Someone who really thinks the Mosaic law applies to a Christian will say, see, if you say anything within the Mosaic law does not apply to us, you are relaxing one of the least of these commandments. Jesus is saying, is warning people who soften the demands and expectations of the law here. People are doing that. They're softening the blow. They're making the law, they're taking the teeth out of the law and saying, well, you can actually meet it. I mean, look at the righteousness of the Pharisees. Well, Jesus is saying, yeah, their righteousness is self-righteousness. They ain't getting into the kingdom. You got to go past that. How do you do that? Look at the law in its entirety and understand that standard is something you can't meet. Then you can come to a place where you need the righteousness of God and cry out for help. So Jesus is, is, is warning people not to lower the standard or the bar. Otherwise, they don't see their need for a savior. They think they can do the law on their own, which is what the religious leaders were doing. In other words, they would place, scripture does say that the religious leaders would place burdens on people the, that, they, that they would not lift with their own finger. They would place burdens on people. In other words, they would place the burden of fulfilling the law perfectly without relying on God or, 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 or admitting their inability, they would place that burden of fulfilling the law on the person and say, you can do this, and it's a burden they couldn't bear. So this is what happens when the law requirements are watered down. When you lower the standard of God, you think you can do something that you actually can't, and you carry a burden you're not meant to bear. Jesus carries the burden, if we can say it like that, carries the, the weight of the law on his shoulders. You don't, I don't. So when Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, I don't believe he's saying, if you say anything about the Mosaic law does not apply to new covenant saints. I, I don't think he's saying that. This is about, again, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. And to keep that in mind, 
Jesus is talking about there is a righteousness that we don't have. And the law exposes that and speaks to that. And eventually the law will be accomplished and fulfilled by who? Jesus, who gives us righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. But if you relax one of the commandments of God and say, that's not a big deal, you're, you're stripping the law of its teeth. And you say, well, you don't need to do that in terms of like, you can do this and you can get to heaven then you are eliminating your need for Jesus's righteousness because you think you can do it on your own. So Jesus is also speaking of how the law will not stop being true. Again, when we we look at the Old Testament, we're not saying it's no longer true. Truth is applied in different situations in different ways. Um, I don't know, trying to think off the top of my head. I can't think of any good scenarios this morning because I'm just, I'm out of it. But let's go on, okay. He's speaking to um, the actual truthfulness of the law itself. Not a dot will pass from it in terms of that. I think I'm going to continue to build this case. I don't think I've done a good job yet. And I get that. We're we're barely getting our feet wet. Okay, so I'm going to stop saying things I haven't yet validated with Scripture. Luke 24, 44. Jesus says this. Remember, we're answering the question, what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? Well, he's going to fulfill and not abolish. Uh, He's going to achieve its end. He's going to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, Jesus is walking with, um, he appears to the disciples here. Luke 24, 44. He says to them, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything written about me Okay, everything written, why can't I highlight this? Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay, must be fulfilled. Jesus has already resurrected. So is there a fulfilling that is lacking or is he just speaking to the fact that I came to fulfill the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In other words, to see Jesus as being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the Psalms and the writings, okay? So Jesus sees himself, and this is not arrogance on any part. This is Jesus accurately seeing the scriptures. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms are written about Jesus. When you read the the Old Testament, you should see Jesus. So the point is, he came to fulfill that. He sees himself as being prophetically declared and almost concealed within the New Testament until he opens the mind of the person to see it. Uh, John 15, 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. Here's just one example of what it looks like for Jesus to fulfill. Okay, The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Okay. And there he's quoting Psalm 35. So within their own law, it testifies within their own Hebrew Bible. It testifies to the fact that Jesus will be hated by his own people without a cause. And that had to be fulfilled. Um, Acts chapter 28. It says, when they had appointed a day for him, uh, this is Paul, uh, toward the end of the book of Acts, they came to him at his lodging. Uh, in greater numbers, the, the, the Jews of Rome. From morning till evening, he expounded to them. Look at what Paul's doing. 
testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. He's using the law and using the prophets to reveal the nature of Jesus and what he came to do and show them why Christ is the Messiah. Okay. Romans 8, 1 through 4, this is where we'll spend a little more time. Because again, we're answering the question, what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? I think this is going to give us the clearest answer we've come across. Not just that the law prophetically declares who he is and what he'll do. Not just that the law sets the standard that Jesus will fulfill for us. right? Not just that the law tells humanity what we can't do so that Jesus can come and do it perfectly for us. But also Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation, penalty for sin, death. There's none of that for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the spirit of life, and we'll address this more a, a little more later when we talk about, I think, tomorrow's session. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. When he speaks to the law of sin and death, someone might be tempted to separate that from the actual Mosaic law. But in fact, those are the only two categories Romans uses, is the, the, the law um, of Moses versus what Romans 2 will speak to, and Romans 8 here speaks to, the law of the spirit of life. Um, so the law of sin and death here, someone might be tempted to say, that's not referring to the law of Moses because the law doesn't bring death. Actually, Romans 6 and 7 will tell us the law does bring death, not on its own, but sin actually taking advantage of the law brings more sin. So sin uh, exploits the law. Sin itself brings death through the law. Like if sin is a murderer coming into your house, the, the murder weapon is going to be wielded by him as the law, using the law to exploit and produce death. So the law of sin and death here isn't, and if you want to say, well, that's just speaking to like the law of gravity, how it functions, how sin and death function. Okay, you can't take the law out of the equation because again, sin brings death into the world through the law. Right? So the law can't be taken out of the equation. It's a part of this. Even if you say, well, it's not speaking to the Mosaic law, it's still a part of it. It's still a part of the process of how death happens because God declared death happens because of sin. Sin exploits that. And Paul will speak to how, you know, I didn't know covetousness until I saw the law and sin, you know, took advantage and, and crept up more sin within me. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh is the law good yes it's just not helpful in saving it's useless when it comes to making us righteous and giving us you know a spot in the kingdom the law can't do that the law just exposes your problem and points you to the solution being jesus so god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do the law being the entire Mosaic law, the entire old covenant, Sinai covenant, the flesh, right, weakened the law and God steps in and goes, okay, I'll do what the law couldn't. I'll do what no other human could. And it's interesting. You go, how did God do what the law failed to do? Not that the, the law failed in that sense. The law was never purposed to save. The law was put in place, as we saw last session, to expose our inability and our sin. 
right? So that we cry out for help and point, point us to Jesus. So God steps in and does what the law was not brought into the world to do. There's a certain function the law doesn't have and it doesn't save. God does. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. So this answers the question, how is there no condemnation for us? Well, because sin itself was punished, penalized, condemned in the flesh of Jesus who came from the Father to take on our sin. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And you go, oh, where did we come from? Hold on. Where did we come from? Well, those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So where in the world, how do, how do we get thrown into this equation? It works like this. There is a righteous requirement the law has. If you want to get into the kingdom of God, you must meet this standard. You must meet these requirements. It's righteousness. We fall short. That's why Jesus in Matthew 3 says, I've come to fulfill all righteousness. He's come to fulfill and meet the demands of the law in our place. He's the perfect human we failed to be. He meets the law. He plays by his own rules. He comes under our own, you know, what Galatians is going to say. He comes under the law for us to rescue us from it. And he meets that standard, dies our death, takes our sin up within his own body. And sin is condemned in his flesh. And then he dies. He's buried. Three days later, he resurrects so that he took our sin. Now we can have his perfection in our life. So the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. That's crazy. That's crazy. We fulfill the law, not on your own, in Christ, through your faith in him, through your attachment to him and your status and you being locked into him through faith, you fulfill the law just as he does. He extends to you his perfection. So part of Jesus fulfilling the law is doing what the law required for us so that we can fulfill the law with him. Um, let me take you to Luke 23 from the words of Jesus. Um, it was now about the sixth hour. This is Luke's gospel. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. I want to highlight this. The curtain. Now remember, the way that the temple was structured, there was the, the outer area where anyone can go. There was the actual um, inner place, uh, holy place you might say, where only the priests could go. And then that holy place had a curtain that separated it from the most holy place. So there were layers. There was the outer area, there was the inner, uh, the holy place, and then there was the most holy place. And the most holy place had a curtain that kept everyone out, except the high priest on the day of atonement, who would go in on behalf of Israel. So that curtain that separated the, the most holy place, the presence of God, and separated that from anyone on the planet, except the high priest on the day of atonement, that curtain right here, is torn 
in two. Torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice, his father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Okay. Mark will say something similar. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw the way Jesus breathed his last, like he yielded his spirit, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, I think Matthew is going to say something different, not like to contradict, but to fill in the gaps of what wasn't said. Um, why am I not finding it? Hold on one sec. Ah, it's John 19. Okay, no matter what, here we see, uh, where is it? Ba, 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 ba. The curtain of the temple torn in two from top to bottom. John's gospel, I think it's John 19. John 19, 28, it says this. After this, Jesus, knowing all was finished, he said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When he says, I thirst, apparently Psalm 69, 21 is in mind. Watch. When Jesus received the sour wine, which was to be symbolic of the wrath of God or the cup of God's wrath, which sour grapes, Old Testament language and symbology, represented of Jesus taken on our punishment and our condemnation and our death, he said, watch, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished? What exactly was finished? What exactly did he fulfill? Well, it seems to be, you might say, well, he, he fulfilled or finished the work he was sent to do. Okay, but you can't ignore the fact that in Matthew 5, 17, that plays into Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets themselves. Not a section of it, but the law and the prophets in their substance and entirety are fulfilled by Jesus. He says, it is finished. It is done. The righteous requirement that the law demands and expects of humanity, he fulfills that perfectly in our place by taking our death. So, let me take you to John 14, 6. Because when it says that the curtain was torn in two, which is symbolic of the work of Jesus being finished or is symbolic of the law reaching its completion or desired end or Jesus fulfilling the law. When that curtain is torn, it represents something that Jesus hints at in John 14. He tells Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, hold on, Jesus, you're saying you're the way into the kingdom of heaven? He goes, not necessarily. I'm being more specific. Yes, I'm the only way into the kingdom, but more specifically, I'm the way back to the Father. It's not just about getting into some glorious kingdom where everything's great. It's about getting back to him. And so the curtain kept people out, right? The curtain seems to be symbolic or representative of what Jesus came to fulfill being the law and the prophets. There's something about the righteous requirement of the law that kept us out. No one could get in. No one can get near the presence of God. So God comes down to us. 
His son says, guess what? Now you don't have to go through some curtain. Only the high priest could only do that on the day of atonement anyway. Now you can go through me to get to the father. In other words, the reason the temple curtain is torn is because Hebrews will tell us through the flesh Jesus of Jesus, the curtain he opened is himself. So now we can enter into the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies, and be filled with the presence of God through him. So the curtain of the temple was always to be representative of, yes, the law and the prophets and the standard we couldn't meet, but namely Jesus who fulfills that and becomes the way in. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Okay. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have what? Well, this strong hope that Jesus set before us, right? We have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So I'm not making this up. The author of Hebrews himself says, you can enter into what the curtain kept from you at one point. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So now it's not, hey, the high priest has to go in once a year to atone for the people of Israel's sin. Now it's Jesus is the perfect high priest who every other person failed to be. No other high priest could meet the standard. No other high priest had an indestructible life. No other priest actually came directly from the Father. So Jesus is our high priest and he grants us entrance into the true Holy of Holies, which symbolically was behind the curtain because he is the way in. He is the curtain we pass through to get to the Father and he mediates a new covenant as the perfect high priest that allows us to go in. So he's not some high priest that's like, sorry, buddy, you can't get in. I'm a little better than you. He comes down into our world to bring us into the actual presence of God so that we can become the living temple. We can become the living temple as the people of God. That's what the temple structure was always to represent is the people of God, the body of Christ, namely Jesus himself. But Jesus identifies with his people now so that Ephesians will say we're, we're a living temple built on the the cornerstone and the foundation. So Hebrews 10, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the life of Jesus, by the work of Jesus, all these different things, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is what? His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let's draw near. And he'll go on to talk about all that that includes. The point is, part of Jesus fulfilling the law means he now replaces the curtain that once stood in between humanity and the presence of God. He is the curtain. That temple curtain was just an earthly, material, physical representation of what only Jesus could be. That was never the end desired result, was that a curtain would stay there. That was moving humanity towards the ideal so that Jesus would be the way in. What we should ask is, is there anything else that fits under that category of, hey, 
This was a physical representation of Jesus to be fulfilled by him, and it's played its role, it's fulfilled its outcome, it's achieved its end, and now its use in our time in human history is just to point us to Christ and symbolically represent him. Is there anything else that fits under that category? Well, Paul talks about circumcision in that way. So even when it comes to the temple structure and the way things looked in the temple, you could spend a lifetime studying all the different dimensions of the temple and all that was included and find a deep connection to Christ. The point is, Jesus fulfilling the law means he meets the standard and he becomes the way in because he's the only one that's lived perfectly on our behalf to grant us entrance and access to the presence of God. No one else has. He opened the way. He became the way. When there was no way, he fulfilled the law, took our problem, paid our sin, died our death, became the embodiment of human darkness on the cross in his flesh, and now he became the way back to the Father. So he opened that for us. Here's also what it means. I, I just want you to pay attention to the intentional temple ceremonial language that is used to refer to how Jesus not only fulfills the law and accomplishes its desired end, but also how he becomes a new and living way. If it's new, let's go to Hebrews 9, okay? Pay attention, like please listen. Verse 1, it says, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Okay? A tent or tabernacle was prepared. The first section in which was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. By the way, I've done an entire uh, series on Hebrews. You can go check this out. I've done Hebrews 9 in depth. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Okay. Now what the author of Hebrews is about to do is he's taking these two places in the temple. There is the holy place where the priests could go and do their regulations and all their responsibilities. And then there was the most holy place. Only the high priest could go on the day of atonement. So you have these two places. What the author of Hebrews is about to do is he's going to take that first section and he's going to symbolically use that to represent the old and first covenant. And then the most holy place will become, I believe, representative of the new covenant, if I'm not mistaken. I might have to correct that statement a little bit as we go on. I'm not, so don't, don't throw stones at me yet. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now these things we can't now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. Okay? First section performing their ritual duties. What does the author of Hebrews connect with the first section, ritual duties? 
you might say the sacrificial responsibilities, but also referring to, uh, I don't know, other washings and cleansings that would have to do with the cleanliness or the uncleanness of the people of Israel. So ritual duties goes beyond just sacrificial responsibilities. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. The first section here is connected to the first covenant, the regulations for worship that revolved around the earthly place, the tabernacle, the temple, right? The first section includes the lampstand, the table, the bread, the presence, all those responsibilities the priests had to tend to and the ritual duties. That can all be lumped into what the author says is the first section. Now watch what he says. The first section is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, which is the first section, the old covenant, the first covenant, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But these gifts and these sacrifices deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest through the greater and more perfect tent, not made, without, not made with hands, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of any animal blood, but by his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. So the time of reformation here is when Jesus appears as our high priest to accomplish the work that no other priest could do. The time of reformation here signals the transition between the old covenant and the new. So what I want you to see is the food and drink washings, regulations for the body. You might say those just have to do with the actual sacrifices. Okay. The problem with that is the washings, uh, the regulations for the body, those were also separate laws in and of themselves, apart from just the sacrifices. You might say food and drink here refers to, you know, the worshiper participating in the offering or sacrifice they bring to the God of Israel. And there's a portion, depending on the offering, there's a portion that they could eat from and, or eat and uh, enjoy. But food and drink here has to do with what he's been saying. Food and drink, washings, regulations for the body. It's not limited just to the way uh, someone would worship with an animal sacrifice, okay? It also has to do with, because think about any of the other dietary laws or uh, ceremonial cleansing laws. Those could be still separated from the actual sacrifices themselves. And those dietary laws, when you would adhere to them, when you would do what the Lord said, that was a form of worshiping the God of Israel, okay? So I, I just want you to see, I'm not gonna, say that this for sure eliminates the dietary laws of Israel and they don't apply to the new covenant believers. But I don't think it's not saying that either. <laughs> I'll just say that. 
this first covenant, Jesus seems to, um, well, I guess let's go on to Ephesians 2, and this will clarify. Because remember, he says, as long as the first section is still standing, right, the holy place, the entrance into the holy place is not yet opened. So what's the assumption there? That the first section has to, the first section has to be um, removed. And you say, whoa, 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 hold on. Don't tell me you're saying the Mosaic law is removed. I'm not going to use that language. I'm going to let Hebrews use that language. Okay. I'm going to let Hebrews do the job. Um, where is it? Mm. We'll, go, we'll get to Hebrews 7 when we get to it. Okay. Ken, I love you, buddy. You're the best. And there it is. <laughs> ah, I love you guys. You're the best. Okay. I, again, I'm not making any explicit statement about how far we can take this. Just know that when the first section is removed, fulfilled, accomplished by Jesus, part of what is replaced includes the regulations, food and drink, various washings, because the time of reformation refers to when Christ appears to be our high priest, when he accomplishes it. And that also includes what also seems to be attached to that first section is the old regulations for worship and the earthly place of holiness being the tabernacle. Okay. Okay. Ephesians chapter two. This is a hotly debated passage because of what it says and what it seems to contradict at first. Think of all the temple language that's been put up front already. How Jesus fulfills what the law requires. How he is the embodiment of the law. How he is the way into the true holy of holies. But by actually, you know, becoming the curtain. And replacing the old symbolic curtain, which was material and earthly in nature. Remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, by the way. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, watch. So you have the Gentile pagan unbelievers who were cut off from all the benefits of Israel. Now that doesn't mean a Gentile had no degree of being grafted into the nation. Um, there were converts for sure. There were people who wanted to take on Judaism and believed in the God of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. Um, how far they could go though, without that national heritage, without actually descending from Abraham physically, how far they could go in enjoying the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise and all the benefits and blessings that the nation of Israel got to experience as the people. How far they could go, I'm not entirely sure. Okay, I just know there was a degree of access they would have and a degree of participation. I don't believe that proselytes had the same degree of... Well, hold on. <laughs> I'll say that. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
So remember, here's that temple language, the way the high priest would go into the most holy place with blood not his own on the day of atonement to atone for the sin of the nation of Israel. Not, an, not intentional sin, but the ritual impurity, you might say. It was almost a ritual impurity reset, the day of atonement. Okay, to cleanse and purge the land of uncleanness. The same way the high priest would go in with blood. Well, Jesus has brought his own blood into the true holy of holies so that we can be drawn near to. Now watch, he himself is our peace, who has made us, Jew and Gentile, both one. And he has broken down in his flesh. Do you remember what Hebrews chapter 10, 19 and 20 said? That he opened for us the curtain through his flesh, right? So watch. In his flesh, he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. You know what that is? Like, <laughs> we're not even like wondering anymore. That's obviously the curtain, the dividing wall of hostility. Because remember, Jesus' flesh is the new through his life and death and resurrection. Through him, you gain access to the Father. He's the true and living curtain and the true way to the Father. He's what the curtain represented. So the dividing wall of hostility is indeed what we see as the curtain that kept people out of the true holy of holies. Now, how has he broken down you might say, how has he torn the curtain from top to bottom that once kept humanity out of the presence of God? How would you answer that? How would you answer that? How did he do that? Well, Paul's going to answer that very clearly by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So, no matter what, there was a separation that took place between God and humanity because of sin. The law stood as witness, per Deuteronomy 30 and 31, the law, the book of Moses, stood as witness against us. Which said, you can't get into the kingdom because you don't meet the standard of God. There is a dividing wall of hostility. And part of Jesus making way for us is that he abolishes the law of commandments. Now hold on. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 explicitly says, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. And you can say, well, that's a poor translation. Let's look it up. Let's look it up. Real time. Right now. Look it up. Ephesians 2.15. Is that a good word? Abolish. Is that the same word Matthew 5.17 uses in the Greek? Let's find out. The ordinances... Ah, there's my kids yelling in the background. Okay. The word here for abolishing means to render inoperative, like literally to abolish, to make of no effect, to annul, to bring to nothing. 
Okay, so I don't think we're wondering if abolish is the right word. I think we know that's the right word. Bruh, he's saying that part of Jesus breaking down what kept humanity out of the presence of God, however far that symbolism carries, part of what that means is he abolished the law of commandments. Now, specifically, the ones that are expressed in ordinances. Now, hold on. Paul didn't have to add on that extra description of what the law of commandments are. If you told me the law of commandments, I would go, yeah, you don't need to explain that any further. That's referring to the Torah. That's referring to the law, the book of Moses or the tablets of stone. But he adds on expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. So, we have Jesus being our peace, making us one new humanity in himself, bringing us, reconciling us to God. How? Well, by breaking down the curtain that separated humanity from God. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And that little description there might be something worth studying is that these don't just seem to refer to the Ten Commandments. Jesus did not abolish the, the moral law of God. Hey guys, morality is not a thing anymore. Just kind of do what you want. It's all grace. He didn't do that. But what does it mean that he nullified, brought to nothing, abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? Now I think if we're to be consistent with Ephesians 2, we have to ask, what is it that kept specifically Gentile people and uh, Gentile, yeah, Gentile, <laughs> what kept them far off? Because he will say, you know, he's brought us both near to God. Those who were close, those who were near. Yeah, he came and preached peace to you who were far off. That refers to the Gentiles and peace to those who were near. That can also include converts, proselytes, but specifically the Israelite people who were, had really close proximity to the temple and the tabernacle and the law and, and all that. They, were, you, they had a physical proximity to God that the Gentile nations did not, right? So in that sense, they were near. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So what is it that specifically kept not just Gentiles, but also Jewish people out of the presence of God? Well, you might say it was sin, okay? I'm, in, I'm to, totally in agreement, by the way. I'm not saying it's not sin. But he does say he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. If we're to be consistent with Hebrews, what is removed, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 8, which, by the way, we'll talk about how the, the first covenant is obsolete and growing old, vanishing. I'm not the one making up this language, by the way. I'm literally reading word for word just what it says, okay? But if we're to be consistent with what Hebrews said, it, it includes this stuff. The law of commandments expressed in ordinances, when Jesus is typically referred to as a high priest um, that becomes or lets us into the, the presence of God or makes a way to the Father, it, that language is usually accompanied with ritual ceremonial kind of language as well 
such as the, the washings, the regulations, the food and drink. This is connected to Jesus opening a new way, you know, by um, doing away with the old way of worshiping in an earthly place of holiness with different regulations. So if you're wondering what my thoughts are, most consistently we can, I think, for certain say that the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that kept everyone out of the presence of God very simply was um, for sure sin, right? But also think about all the things the high priest had to do on the day of atonement and he's the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies on that day with blood not his own and with the incense, you know, puffing up. Think about all the stuff he had to do, the regulations he had to meet. That seems to be what is also in mind mainly is the ceremonial regulations for an earthly place of worship that had to do with the temple and the animals and the incense and the the blood of goats and bulls and the priesthood that would go in and tend to the stuff and deal with the blood that would go into the basin and wash themselves all those different ordinances that had to do with approaching god that frankly um even if you did them you still couldn't go into the holy of holies because that curtain stood in between you and the and the presence of God, all those ceremonial ordinances seem to be what's in mind here. Okay. Now what you have to ask is, does that also include, and I'm not going to answer that because I don't think it's appropriate to answer it yet, but I think it's worth asking at least. Does that also include dietary laws, laws of clean and unclean animals, laws of clean and unclean touching things, what what does that include? If it includes circumcision, if it includes um, what we see as the earthly regulations for worship, which the author will explicitly say refers to the food and drink regulations, various washings, we have to ask how far does that go and what is included in that package of what Jesus has annulled or achieved its, its desired end? Because again, it, Ephesians 2 does use the word abolished. So what you and I have to reconcile is this isn't a contradiction in scripture. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He said very clearly he came to fulfill it. When he says that, is there possibly, <laughs> oh man, is there possibly a distinction between the book of Moses, right? Um and the Ten Commandments, Tablets of Stone, which I think I've given enough biblical reasoning and evidence to, to support that claim, that there is a distinction between the two. And if you haven't watched the, the first part of this video, go watch. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Just go listen to my arguments first. But I just wonder, is there a possibility that in Matthew 5.17, and I'll take you there, that Jesus does come to fulfill everything we see in the Law and the Prophets right? He does, 100%. Don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Is abolishing, okay, um, what's a good way to ask this? If something is removed, is it abolished? If something is, um, I don't know, done away with, is it in fact abolished? Because we looked at the word abolished in Matthew 5, 17, and I'll bring it up again. 
and I know people are going to not like this, but Hebrews 7 specifically is going to talk about how it's passing away. It's coming to nothing. And so you have to reconcile that with Matthew 5.17 and go, okay, the word abolish here means to overthrow. I think I said this earlier. Bing, bing. Uh, to deprive of force, to annul, to discard. I don't think that's what Jesus does with the law. So there, there, there are two ideas spinning around my head as I'm reading this. One idea is this, Jesus didn't come to say the old covenant and the law is, 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 is garbage. I've come to exercise authority and overthrow it and just kind of do away with it. He doesn't do that, number one. But Ephesians 2 does say he's abolished the law of commandments. So is there a category for Jesus has, and I haven't even thought this through all the way, has, is there a category for Jesus fulfills the law and it's done away with, right? But it's not abolished in terms of being completely discarded and, and brought to nothing in terms of this has uh, no place in human history or the people of God and it's not true anymore. I, I think there is a category for Jesus fulfilling while Ephesians 2 says the, the abolishment of those ordinances is also simultaneously happening. Here's the second thought I have. The entire law and substance points to Jesus. He isn't just the law personified. He's the law. Uh, he fulfills the law and meets the requirements. You know, he's prophetically declared by the law. And the law being the, the, you know, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. So for sure, he is the fulfillment of that. He says it is finished on the cross. Okay. Is there a sense in which Jesus might be distinguishing in his statement on Matthew 5 and then Paul here in Ephesians 2, is there a distinction being made between what we already established in the beginning of the video, which is the book of Moses, the book of the law, and the Ten Commandments? In other words, is there maybe a category for Jesus has done away with a section, a portion, a category of the law being the ceremonial things while the whole law in and of itself and its entirety has been fulfilled by him not to be overthrown or declared unhelpful at all or this is not from God, right? Is there a way that, that Jesus has done that? And I think as we move forward and read a few more scriptures and answer the question, how are we set free from the law? This, this might become a little more clear. Because when I read this, I'll, I'll be honest, the way I've always read this is, well, he didn't do away with the law, he fulfilled it. But is there a sense in which a part of the law, a portion of it, has actually been rendered and done away with and abolished in that sense? In other words, is it still true, even if Jesus does away with the ceremonial laws and those are abolished, okay? Is it still true that Jesus came to fulfill the law in its entirety and not abolish it? Sure. In other words, maybe here's the best way to say it. Um, someone says, he abolished the requirements of the law by fulfilling it, but the law itself is truth and still has a purpose. Yeah, I, I, well, I would say him fulfilling it for sure has to do with abolishing the requirements. 
Um, but then we have to ask, how far does that go? We know it's in terms of salvation, we're not required to do anything. But well, now for sanctification and obedience, how much of that law still applies? But the point is, I think we can say this. Jesus fulfilled the whole law. Amen. Jesus did not abolish the entire law of Moses, for sure. But there seems to be a section, a portion of the, the book of Moses, the law of Moses, that has been abolished, being that which relates to the physical temple, the ceremonial laws and cleansings and washings. And then we have to ask, is there anything else that might fall under that category? So the second question we'll answer is, how are we set free from the law? How are we set free from the law? When we're set free from the law, and this is the language that's used in Romans, in Acts, in 1 Corinthians, um, Galatians. When the authors say that we're set free from the law, are we simply set free from the penalty of the law? Because everyone's going to go, yeah, we're for sure set free from the penalty of the law and the requirement. We don't have to do anything to gain salvation and, and we're not condemned anymore for sure. But is there another dimension of being freed from the law that might include ceremonial things such as dietary laws and feasts and those things is the, I'm not saying for sure. I'm just asking, is there potentially that dimension of being freed from the law as well? And let's just, let's just keep reading. Okay. I don't even think I clarified what it means that Jesus fulfilled the law. Oh, cause I have so many questions myself. Acts 13 verse 38. It says, let it be known to you brothers that through this man, Jesus, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By him, everyone who believes is freed. Freed from what? From everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So he doesn't explicitly say the law of Moses is something to be set free from. He's saying the law of Moses couldn't set you free from something. Sin, death, condemnation. But Jesus can. Jesus can. Right? So there are things that the law of Moses couldn't set us free from, for sure. Scripture also teaches we need to be freed from the actual law of Moses, which I'll show you right now. Let me take you to Galatians 5. Let's start with this one. Galatians 5, 1 through 15. Actually, no, hold on. I don't like that order. Let me go to Romans 8 real quick. I know we, we, we read this earlier. Let me just read this verse. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do, right? Sorry, back to verse 2. The law of the spirit of life, which seems to be new covenant, what Jesus does, has set you free. Right? The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there seems to be a different law that is in operation by the spirit and happens by Christ that is different from the law of sin and death. So the law of sin and death, again, I explained this earlier, some would be tempted to say, well, the law of sin and death just refers to the way sin and death works in the world. It doesn't include the law. He's not saying the Mosaic law is a law of sin and death. Are you sure? Even if you say this is not about the Mosaic law, I'll give that to you. The law is still used by sin to bring about death. Romans makes that very clear. That, again, if sin is, is a murderer, the murder weapon is the law. Sin exploits the law, takes advantage of the law, brings more sin and death through the law. Okay, so again, Paul won't say the law is bad. The law is good, but it just can't save. So the law of the spirit of life seems to be contrasted with the law of sin and death, which even if you say is not the law of Moses, okay, even if you say is not the law of Moses, 
um, still includes it. Okay. First Corinthians 15 says the sting of death is sin. How does death inflict its, its own self into the world? Well, through sin. And the power of sin is the law. In other words, what gives sin its power to inflict death? Well, the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, hold on. Is the victory here just over sin and just over death? Or does the victory also include, because then you might go, why did Paul even bring in the law in the first place to make it sound like we need victory over the law? That's the question. Do we need victory over the law as well, even though it's good, even though it is from God, even though it is holy, right? We're not debating that. Is it something to have victory over in terms of being usurped and used by sin and death? Okay, Romans chapter 4 will also speak to this. And I'm trying to fly through the rest of this. But also be patient. Romans 4 says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, that didn't come through the law. It came through the righteousness of faith. Right? So we have promise contrasted with the law. For it is the adherence of the law who are to be, if it is the adherence of the law, who are to be the heirs, well then faith is null and void. That's why I'm highlighting faith with promise. And the promise is void, because the promise came before the law. For the law brings wrath. That couldn't be any clearer. The law brings wrath. And you might say, well, he's talking about the law of sin and death. No, he's talking about the actual law of Moses. The Mosaic law, not to make it bad, but the law does bring wrath, justly. It is the just consequence for sin. Where there is no law, there's no transgression. That's why it depends on faith. So the promise can rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not to the adherent of the law only, but to the one who shares faith of Abraham. Right? So it's faith that brings about the promise God made to Abraham, not adherence to the law, because the promise came before the law, and the law doesn't void and nullify the promise God made prior to the law. So the law brings wrath so far in the sense that, well, the law declares that the consequence for sin is death, but also there's going to be more that's said about the law. Okay? Romans 6, 14 and 15. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So sin has dominion over you if you are under law, but we're under grace. So what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? No way. So the question becomes, what does it mean that we're not under law? Well, he's saying that, you know, we don't look to the law for salvation. The law does not make us righteous. The law can't penalize us or condemn us anymore because we've come outside of that into Christ and he fulfills the law for sure. But is there another, is there nuance to this and another dimension we might be missing? Okay. I, I think there is. I really do. I really do. When, when we just hyper-focus on, well, the law declares that, uh, you know, wrath is the just penalty for sin and death. When the law, you know, brings about an awareness of sin, when sin capitalizes on the law, well, that's why we need to be set free from the law. The law is good, but, you know, we need to be set free from the condemnation of the law and the penalty of the law. Is that all that it means to come out from under the law? Like, is it just about no longer condemnation, no longer death, or is there something else? Is there something to the fact that Jesus 
actually abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Could that have in mind, not the tablets of stone and the Ten Commandments, but could that have in mind the book of the law of Moses, which includes all the other stuff? Not to at all separate and go, oh, they don't go together. But I showed you in scripture how the book of Moses, the book of the law, is distinguished and delineated from the Ten Commandments written on stone. And there's a possibility, there's no explicit teaching that says this in scripture, but there's a possibility that the Ten Commandments could have been written in the book of Moses too. I just haven't come across it. And if I'm wrong, um, I'm wrong. That wouldn't change the fact that they are delineated though, or, you know, distinguished. Even if it did contain the Ten Commandments within the book of the law, the tablets of stone didn't have the rest of the ceremonial and dietary laws written on it. Okay, so we find ourselves in Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Well, from what? Well, Romans 6 says we're not under the law anymore. Romans 4 says, um, what does it say? <laughs> um, that the law is something we have come out from under. That's the point. Yeah. So for freedom, Christ has set us free. Let's just let Paul speak. I'm not going to say it's the law. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. What would that look like? Well, look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision. So that's what it means for them to submit again to a yoke of slavery. Okay. Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will be of no advantage to you. So the Galatian church is tempted to take on circumcision and look to that as additional or supplementary to their salvation and say, well, you know, Jesus saves, but we also have to be circumcised. Wouldn't that be including works? <clears throat> so again, there's a difference between looking to the law to save and looking to the law to guide our life. And I think eventually that's going to be the question is we know the law doesn't save us, but also now that we're in Christ, does the law tell us how to live and how much of the law does? If in fact there's categories of, hey, this law is fulfilled, this law is abolished, this law is done away with, this is passed away, what else fits under that? And how do we distinguish? Okay, look, if you accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you. I testify again to everyone who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. So the Galatians are looking to the law adding circumcision in and saying, well, we should do this to also be saved. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit and by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Pause. Circumcision was a law that God gave to Abraham and to the people who would follow in the footsteps of Abraham. It was the covenantal sign. Right? The Abrahamic covenant was established on circumcision. That was the sign of the covenant. So how is it that circumcision has all of a sudden just become null and void? As if to say, well, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. Well, hold on, that was a command of God. Well, go, yeah, for that season of human history, and now there's a greater circumcision. Okay, what else fits under that category that circumcision falls under? What category? The category of this was a law of God, and now it does not apply to new covenant believers the way it used to apply to the people of God. What else fits under that category? In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. Interesting. 
you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you, right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord. You'll take no other view. And the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But look, if I brothers still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Wow. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. <laughs> you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Circumcision. No. Love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love is what the people of God have been called to, right? Not to look to the law to save, not to look to circumcision as additional or supplementary to salvation or, or even as necessary, or even as something that is instructive in nature to the people of God in the new covenant, because there's now the circumcision of the heart. So a physical circumcision was a material, physical symbol of the deeper spiritual thing Christ would do, what else in the law falls under that category? Meaning, what else in the law of Moses was merely a physical representation of what Jesus would do, but in that season of human history, it functioned as instruction for the nation of Israel, but now it does not function as instruction or commands for us. What else falls under that category? And I keep emphasizing that because I don't think people have really thought through this. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Pause. Circumcision was a command of God. When did it change that that command of God no longer, no longer applies to the people of God? Well, it kind of seems to have transitioned with Jesus. Again, the question becomes, what else that used to fall under a command of God or was found in the, in the book of Moses, what else no longer falls under the category of the commandments of God for his people in the new covenant? What else? And I think this passage will do us wonders. You ready? Galatians 3.10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, of course, we all agree that he's speaking to those who look to the law for salvation, you're under a curse. Why? Because it says, cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the what? The book of the law. What's Paul referencing here? The book of the law that was next to the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? And do them. In other words, the law exposes your inability. The law does not show you what you need to do to get to heaven because you can't. So in some sense, I guess it does show you, look what you need to do. And you're like, I can't. It's like, yeah, exactly. So you're under a curse because you're not perfect. Enter Jesus. So don't look to the law and your own obedience to get you into the kingdom. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Like for sure, we're not arguing that. For the righteous shall live by what? Faith. But the law is not of faith. What law? The book of the law. Think about that. What does he mean? He doesn't say looking to the law is not of faith. He says the law, the book of the law, is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, the law is about doing. 
It's not about trusting and looking to Jesus to make you righteous. It's not about faith. It's not about a gift. It's about your efforts and your obedience and your doing and your performance and you meeting the standard of God on your own. You can't. So faith does seem to be contrasted with the law here. The law is not of faith or from a place of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Okay? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So you can either work according to the law and try and earn your way into heaven and you're screwed. Or you believe in the son who fulfilled the law for you and you're out from under the curse. Is there a curse of the law? Yes. I want you to read that. He's referring to the book of the law. What book of the law? The law of Moses written in the book next to the Ark of the Covenant. That law has a curse. The curse that God gave through Moses and said, if cursed is everyone who doesn't perfectly do this. If you don't do this, it will be a curse to you. If you do this, it will be a blessing to you. So there is a curse the law brings that we need to be set free from. Because remember, we're answering the question, what does it mean that we need to be set free from the law? We don't just need to be set free from what the law declares about sin, which is death and condemnation and eternal wrath. That's not the only thing we're freed from, okay? The curse included within the law, right, is that curse of condemnation and wrath. But I think as you'll see in a little bit, there's a little more to it. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. Okay, ready? The law which came 430 years afterward does not nullify or make void a covenant previously ratified by God. Do you see it? So when Jesus comes, he does fulfill the law, but he's mainly working from a place of fulfilling the promise that was made prior to the law. The law does become an obstacle to overcome and an ob something to fulfill in terms of, well, we can't get there. So Jesus comes to fulfill that, but mainly it's about promise. It's about the covenant God made with Abraham prior to the law. And the law doesn't nullify that covenant. Therefore, Jesus doesn't nullify the covenant in its entirety, any covenant for that matter, he's the fulfillment of all of it. So as to make the promise void, right? For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham as a promise. God gave it to Abraham as a promise. What did God give? Not the law here in this context. He gave the inheritance by promise. So if you want the inheritance, be a part of the promise. Why then the law? Well, because that's, that's a good question, right? If you're like, oh, man, God, if it comes by a promise, and that's, that's the basis of the covenant with Abraham, is the promised seed and have the faith of Abraham and believe in, in, in the God of Israel. If it's by faith and it's through promise, why did you bring in the law? Well, it was added because of sin until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. 
So we have a promise made specifically, not just to Abraham, but to and about Jesus the Messiah, who is the true promised seed of the woman, who is the true promised descendant of Abraham, right? So the law is put in place until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, the law of Moses, right, is added until something. Do you see that? Do you see the timetable put on the law of Moses? It was added until the offspring should come who fulfills the promise and the law, Jesus. So in some sense, when Jesus says, I fulfill the law, he is saying, I signal the end in some way of the law of Moses. What does that mean? It no longer applies. It's no longer true. No, it's true. He fulfills it. He, he is the desired end. Like he's achieved its purpose. Right? There was an intended end for the law of Moses. And it was added until the promise would come, Jesus. And it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No. No, it's not. For if a law had been given that could give life, righteousness would be by the law. The law doesn't say, hey, it's not by promise, it's by me. No. The law says, yeah, it's by a promise. We're just validating the fact that you can't meet the standard of God and we're confirming. The law almost stands as a witness to the promise. The law is not contrary to the promise. In fact, God puts in the law because of sin until the true promise and the law is just pointing to that promise. And the promise is not just a, a word God gave to Abraham. The promise is summed up in a person. So the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Do you see that? The law, right here, imprisons. Oh, you're going, well, it doesn't say the law, it says the scripture. Well, right here in verse 23, it does say the law explicitly. So, the scripture imprisoned everything under what? Under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Do you see it? The law is put in place by God to imprison, lock everything under sin. Why? So that there is no possible chance for you to get to heaven on your own. You have to wait for the promise that comes by faith in Jesus and you believe in him and he gives you the way out. You don't climb your way out. So before faith came, being Jesus in the gospel, we were held captive under the law. So when I say that, yes, we need to be set free from what the law declares, punishment, wrath, death, condemnation, we need to be set free from that. Paul does make it clear, we also need to be set free from the law itself. That doesn't make the law a bad thing that makes the law play its role it needs to, and now we come out from under that and it's accomplished its purpose. It's played its role. The law of Moses has received, achieved its desired end, God's intended purpose. So before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So you might say, well, the law holding you captive is just enforcing the punishment of sin, which is death. For sure, the law does declare 
you're locked in a prison cell of death, you're on death row, and you can do nothing else for that. But he does say the law is doing the imprisoning and holding us captive. Not sin or death, the law is. And again, I have to keep prefacing this with, hey, the law, by the words of Paul in was it Romans, he says it's good. It does imprison, it does hold captive. That's its purpose. Until the coming faith is revealed, namely Jesus. So the law plays its role of enforcing, of imprisoning, of holding captive until, until a certain time marker is reached, namely Jesus comes. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. And I used the babysitter analogy yesterday to let you know, yes, the law functions as a sort of temporary guardian over, you know, overseeing and watching those who are actually condemned by sin. So the law plays like a babysitter kind of role. And I don't think it's a perfect parallel. Just, it just gets the point across that a babysitter isn't there forever. They're just temporarily watching the kids until the parents come home. That's similar to the way the law functions in terms of, hey, you stay there under the condemnation and wrath of your own sin until Christ comes to set you free if you believe in him. So the law acts as a schoolmaster, a tutor, right? Moving us towards Christ, but also a guardian. So in order that we might be justified by faith, now that faith has come, we're not under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So, okay, we need to come out from under the law, not just under sin, not just out from under death, not just out from under, you know, punishment, but out from under the law itself. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Um, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ. In Christ. So if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now this is where it gets interesting. I'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. I gotta pee. God chose the leper when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper when I went bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose the leper. Chose the leper. God chose the leper. Chosen leper. God chose a leper. God chose a leper. When I went bad sin, God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a leper. When I went bad sin, God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a leper, chose a leper. God chose a leper, chose a leper. God chose a leper.
Okay. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Hold on to that. Okay. When you're an heir and you're going to inherit the state of your father, the estate of your father, Paul is saying, yeah, the heir, as long as he's a child, he's not different from a slave. How? Well, even though he's the owner of everything, he's under guardians, managers, until the date set by his father. In the same way, now watch what he does. We also, when we were children, children of wrath, those who are children of the devil, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now you might say, well, that's not talking about the law. I don't know, is it though? What, what's the only thing that he has said we've been imprisoned under or enslaved or held captive by? The law. The Mosaic law. The book of Moses. We were captive under the law. Imprisoned by the law. Right? And he'll even confirm that as we go on. So the elementary principles here, it's not some brand new idea. It's another way of explaining what the book of Moses or the Mosaic law is. It includes and is actually based in elementary principles that the, the world here, you might think, oh, sin, darkness, evil. No, he's just talking of physical reality, material things of this world. Did the old covenant have more to do with physical, material, earthly things than the new covenant does? For sure. Actual animals, actual blood being shed, not that Jesus' blood wasn't real, but an actual physical building you'd go to, actual priests like doing the work and, and um, an actual curtain, an actual lampstand, an actual showbread, uh, a table of showbread, actual, all the physical dimensions of the old covenant were prophetic and were pointing to the spiritual substance of what Christ brings. So that's why they're called elementary principles because another way of saying this is uh, elementary uh, spirits of the world. And I'm, I'm, all I'm saying is that the way Paul communicates the law of Moses is as having to do with the material earth, things that are physical in nature, elementary principles that are moving us towards the ideal, towards maturity. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of woman under what? the law. So I want you to see this, that what we were enslaved to, Jesus comes under. So this can't be anything new. He's talking about sin. He's talking about the worldly things. He's talking about demons. He's talking about uh, spiritual forces of darkness. He's still talking about the law, which had to do with the physical material things of this world. Actual dietary laws. Don't eat this. Don't touch that. You can touch that. You can eat that. Physical things having to do with the body. Actual cleansings. Washing, you know, all these different things. Okay. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his, his son, born of woman, under the law. Why does he emphasize that? To redeem those who were under the law. So do we need to be redeemed from the law itself? Not just from sin, death, spiritual darkness, and condemnation, but also the law of Moses itself. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And you go, well, 
Yeah, he's saying you were saved from or redeemed from looking to the law for salvation. I'll give you that. But he nonetheless does say the law and he specifies the book of the law, right? Where is it? Where is it? Right here. So this is not new. The book of the law, the law, the man-made covenant, the law, the law, the scripture, the law, the law, elementary principles, the law, the law. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. What's he, what's he mean there? Well, you're no longer under the law, under guardians, under managers. You are now a son, a part of the, you know, you have the inheritance of the true beloved divine son. And you carry his identity as well. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. You're an heir through God. Okay. Now let me take you to Romans chapter 7. And just so you're like, well, I don't know, is elementary principles speaking to the law? I think Colossians 2 confirms that. Just a little cross-reference for you. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And you go, well, he's talking about like worldly, demonic things. Really? Go down to verse 20. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Did you hear what he said? He doesn't say, well, part of what they are is they are shadow. He sums up these things as merely being shadows of the things to come. Dietary laws, questions of food and drink. And we'll get into this later. I know like people are going to hate this. The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished. Knit together through its joints and ligaments. Grows with the growth that is from God. Now watch. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. What does that sound like? According to human precepts and teachings, they have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now you might say, well, no, these people are replacing Christ with their own ability and efforts to not eat certain things and not touch certain things. He's saying, if with Christ you died to these things, not just to looking to these things for salvation, right? You've actually died to these things. What things? What he listed up here in verse eight, uh, human tradition, elemental spirits of the world, right? which he goes on to talk about how this is issues of food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbath. And then he goes on and he says, you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, which if you keep reading, if you keep reading, that is what we have come out from under. And he says, and, and you might say, no, he's saying, 
why do you submit to them as if looking to them for salvation? No, he just says submit to them as if in general. Like adhere to them as if this is necessary, as a necessary part of being a believer. He doesn't say why or to what degree they're submitting, just the fact that they do submit to these regulations. Things that have to do with not handling. That's unclean. Don't taste that. Unclean animal. Don't touch that. That's a dead thing. These are all things that have to do with, well, they're referring to things that all perish as they are used. Now, we'll get to this tomorrow's session when we talk about dietary laws and Sabbath and that beautiful conversation that we're going to have. But at least we have to end in Romans 7 today, okay? Because the question we're continuing to ask is, hey, what does it mean we're set free from the law? It does include the things the law, you know, exposes in us, sin. It's the wrath of God, the condemnation and the punishment for sin. That is also what we're set free from. But so far, um, in Galatians and in Romans and even in Colossians, there's, there seems to be this language of you are set free from the book of the law, the book of Moses, which we'll talk about more in depth tomorrow as regards like dietary laws and what about Sabbath, stuff like that. Let me read Romans 7 and then we'll be done. I promise. This has been long. Do you not know, brothers? I'm speaking to those who know the law. That the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, right? Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free. What? Why would you want to be free from marriage? Marriage isn't a bad thing. But the law that said you are bound to this man as your spouse, that law is no longer binding since he has died. So she is free. We, we think of, well, you got to be free. We think when, we, when it says we have to be free from something, that assumes that thing is bad. Marriage is good. Marriage is great. If it's an abusive spouse, sure, not as much, but he's not talking about an abusive spouse. He's just talking about any spouse. If her spouse dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So when we talk about being free from the law, we're not saying that makes the law bad. It doesn't. It's just making a statement. You are now out from under that. Likewise, you also have died to the law. Now you really got to answer the question, what does it mean to die to the law? Well, you know, I am no longer under the penalty of sin and the law can't condemn me because I've come out from under that and Christ has fulfilled that for me. So now I'm perfect and I'm a new creation and all that. Sure. So how far do you take that when it comes to what you need to observe as a Christian now? Is it just talking about the righteous requirement of the law? Is it just talking about what the law requires of us and what we need to do? And let's just keep going. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Oh, so you can belong to another. Well, who do we belong to before? Well, seems like you belonged to not God. <laughs> 
Well, God owns everything, but you weren't a child of his. Sure, you were a child of the devil, child of wrath, child of, you know, sin and rebellion and darkness and all that without Jesus. So, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Whoa. So part of dying to the law means now I can belong to God. Now I can bear fruit for him and glorify him with my life. And that happened through the body of Christ. How many times today have we seen the body of Jesus signals a transition point where we come out of something into something new? Jesus in his life and his death and resurrection makes way for something new. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. So maybe this is also what it means to be set free from the law, right? The law instigated, uh, aroused sinful passion within us. And we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law. Oh, interesting. So this is where we get the language of the law of sin and death when we get to Romans chapter 8. The law of sin and death doesn't seem to be separated from the law of Moses. There is a law at work called God's perfect standard. And it enforces punishment, death, for those who sin. That's part of the law. So we don't need to separate the law of sin and death versus the law of Moses. It seems to be one and the same. That the law brings death. We saw that in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, I forget which one. We're released from the law having died to that which held us captive. So the law did hold us captive. Galatians 3, we were enslaved to the law. We were held captive, imprisoned by the law. So we have to die to the law. Does that mean we die to this desire to, to be perfect by looking to the law? In other words, when I say, hey, have you died to the law? Do I just mean stop looking to the law to save you? Or is there something else? And I think there's something else. It's also that we've come out from under the Mosaic law, the book of the law we see in Deuteronomy, we've come out from under that. So what role does it play in my life? We'll figure that out tomorrow. But we are, we have died to the law so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So you go, well, the law that we're enslaved to is not the law of God. Are you sure? Because he's making a contrast, the new way of the spirit versus the old way of the written code. And then when we get to Romans 8, he'll say, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So is there something about the law that brings death? Uh, because of sin, sin technically brings death through the law, capitalizes, takes advantage of the law for sure. But we still can say that the Mosaic law is in fact, if it's a witness against, if it's uh, declaring you know, penalty and punishment, it is a law of sin and death. That doesn't mean it promotes sin, it's about sin. It means it aggravates sin. It arouses sin because sin takes advantage of that law to produce death in you. So what shall we say then? Okay, that the law is sin? No way, so, so none of us are saying, yeah, the law is bad, the law is sinful. No, no one's saying that. The law is sin? No. And we have to establish that up front. When we say the law is something to be set free from, to come out from under, um, you know, that we need to die to, that we were held captive to, we're not making the law of God, the law of Moses, bad. Right? 
Because again, to be free from the law of marriage doesn't mean your marriage was bad. It doesn't mean the law of marriage is bad. It just means, well, now you can do something else and belong to someone else in marriage. Same with what's happening here. The law kept us from belonging to God because it locked us under sin, locked us under death and penalty. So Jesus has to come and break us free. How? By coming into our prison cell. So look, he goes, if, I hadn't been, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I, I, I would not have known what coveting is unless God showed me in the law, hey, this is what it means to covet, don't do it. Well now, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, which remember how I said the word commandment is almost always used in relation to the Ten Commandments and not the law of Moses, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead, which again doesn't make the law bad, it makes sin evil. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came and I died. So that's why Paul will refer to the, the law of Moses as the law of sin and death. It's right here in this verse. I was alive apart from the law. Well, here comes the commandment to tell me I've sinned. Sin comes alive, I die. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Why? Because it can do nothing but show me my problem of sin and evil and the consequence waiting for me called death. And sin takes advantage, is aroused by the law, and produces more sin so that I'm led to death. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and it killed me. But what did it use? What did it use? It used the commandment. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy. Do you remember how I said there's a distinction? between the law of Moses and the commandments we see on the actual tablets. So the law is holy, for sure. The law of Moses, the book of the law we see next to the Ark of the Covenant, holy. The commandments written on stone, 10 commandments, holy and righteous and good. He's not being unnecessarily repetitive. He is making a distinction, I believe between the actual law of Moses, the book of Moses, and the Ten Commandments written on tablets. So did that which is good bring death to me? No way. It was sin. So we're not, all pointing, we're not at all pointing the finger at the law and going, ugh, the law is just garbage. And no, the law is good. He said that. And it did not bring death. Sin did through the law. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, being the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So the law here is called spiritual. But because we are of the flesh and our spirit is not alive without Christ, we're not capable of doing what the law requires or walking according to what is, you know, demanded of us. We can't. I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. And, and this is, a lot of people misunderstand this. I believe Romans 7 is speaking of an unbelieving Jewish person who knows the law, has the law, tries to follow the law, 
but the law just proves to be death to them because they don't have the ability without the spirit and grace of God to effectively walk in the ways of God. They need righteousness that's not theirs. They need to be given righteousness from God. So if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law, it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That doesn't mean it, it removes responsibility and accountability. It just means sin is working in your life without Christ. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, right? This is a, an unbelieving Jewish person who has the law and goes, I, I really want to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. Doesn't sound like a Christian. I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That doesn't sound like a Christian either. Now, if I do what I don't want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is a person who looks at the law, boasts in the law, loves the law. And is like, oh, yes, I love the law, but they can't do it. So Jesus has to, right? But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. So just, just for fun, Romans chapter 7, I don't believe is about a Christian or, a, I don't know, someone who fell away. This is about an unbelieving Jewish person who has the law, looks to the law, wants to be righteous by the law, but they fail. So in my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind, right? Because they want to do what is good and they're making me captive to the law of sin. doesn't sound like a Christian. We're not held in bondage to sin. We're not captive to sin. We're free that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ. So then I myself serve the law with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And then he transitions to, well, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. As much as you try to do what is right without Christ, you will never be righteous without him. You need him. So the point of saying all this is to say this, the law of Moses is indeed something to be set free from. And that's also what it means, part of what it means that Jesus fulfills the law. He comes under it. He comes to set us free. He fulfills it. He achieves its end. It has reached, you know, its end in Christ. There was a time marker on that thing. And here's what we're going to do. My goal, my goal was to talk about how Jesus is different. I'm not saying he's at odds with or he contradicts, but how he in fact is different than the law of Moses. Um, he is the law of Moses embodied. He is the personification of truth. Like he is the perfect embodiment of God's law. But when we answer this question, we also have to ask, what makes the new covenant better than the old? And I think I'll do that a little, like probably later this afternoon, I'll jump on and do another live. And if you're here, you're here. But I, I don't have time to finish that now. So I'm gonna have to do that later. And again, we'll be answering the question, hey, how is Jesus better than what Moses brings or the law of Moses? Or how is the new covenant better than the old? And we'll answer those questions. But for now, know this, Jesus fulfilling the law means he sets us free from not just the demands and the requirements of the law and the consequences of what the law enforces for sin, but also the actual law and book of Moses itself. 
What does that mean that we're set free from the law of Moses? We'll see in tomorrow's session when we talk about how does the Mosaic law relate to the life of a Christian now. If you didn't know, you can find everything about this ministry at AboveReproachMinistry.com. You find all our free resources. You can give to this ministry. You can get a free get a copy of my book. Not free. <laughs> get a copy of my book. If you become a patron, you get a free copy of my book. Um, you can check out our online church. Check out our beliefs. Um, join the family on Discord. All that. But uh, I gotta go. So I'll see you guys later. I'll be back on. I don't know. Probably I'll give it like three, four o'clock or so. I'll. Eastern Standard Time, I'll be back on, and we'll talk about why the New Covenant is better than the Old, and this will continue to help us answer the question, how does the law of Moses fit into our life as believers, and second, what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? I think that will help us answer it too, all right? I'll see you guys later. Keep moving towards Jesus. Bye.